And I have to say that I have one of the coolest gigs in the world to be able to chat with people like my guests today. Before we start our conversation, if you could take a few seconds and give this podcast a rating, leave a quick review or follow wherever you listen, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. It goes a long way to helping others find us and is always greatly encouraging and appreciated. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and so on. We've got an incredible guest today uh, ensconced in the artist's throne is Wayne Kirkpatrick. Wayne is a multi-Grammy winning songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, producer, vocalist, who along with his Grammys received a Dove Award for Producer of the Year, co-wrote the musical Something Rotten with his screenwriting brother, Kerry Kirkpatrick, a show that was nominated for several Tonys. Wayne has written songs that have been sung by artists like Eric Clapton and Garth Brooks, Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, Faith Hill, Winona, Peter Frampton, and many, many more. It's a distinct pleasure and honor to welcome Wayne Kirkpatrick to the show today. Wayne, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Big thank you to our mutual friend, Gordon Kennedy, for connecting us. So how's life in, in Tennessee these days? Well, it's good. Weather's nice right now, and... Um... I just got back recently from being overseas over in um, England for two months, so I'm kind of settling back into the America slash Nashville way of life. <laughs> it's nice. Were you there on holiday or something? I was there working on, we had a, our uh, musical adaptation of Mrs. Doubtfire, which uh, we were launching over there. We were doing an out of town in Manchester. And then, really, yeah, and then it will move into the West End in the spring of next year. I haven't seen that one yet. That's one I need to see. I love the movie, but I have not seen the stage production of it. Yeah, well, not many people have because it stopped and started. It, it was one of the um, casualties of COVID in, oh, okay. in New York. We uh, were, were trying to open and we were in rehearsals in March of 2020. And we, we, had, we were three shows in the previews when, when COVID hit. In New York, and then so after that, we kind of stopped and started over the next couple of years, like three times over the next couple. And it was a fiasco. Gotcha. So we yeah. finally just folded our tent and <laughs> took it to England. <laughs> well, that's so it's, cool. It's doing it's so far so good over there, you know, post COVID. Great. Well, that's awesome, and it's nice things are opened up a little bit, and so hopefully it's finding a good audience yeah. and can can open on Broadway and do a big old national tour and all that. Yeah, it will actually do it. Start a national tour in the fall of next year. So, Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That's got to keep you pretty busy. Yeah. It's, it's been keeping us jumping through hoops. Yeah. So did you and, and Carrie do all the music and the lyrics and everything for that as well? Like you did with something rotten? Yeah. Same team, same writing team as something rotten. Yeah. John O'Farrell as well. Who's, you know, book writer yeah so we got the band back together so to speak <laughs> that's awesome so we've got uh several decades of your work to to dig into and i want to start just a little bit closer to the beginning 
going back a little bit in time, do you come from a musical home? What what was childhood like, and and how did music factor into that? Well, I'm the oldest of three brothers. As far as a musical background, my father was in college. He sang in in music groups, and and mm-hmm. and then he you know, DJed at a radio station, but nothing professionally. He was the yeah music leader at our church, you know, and active Mm -hmm. in the choir and things like that. So music was definitely in our household. So, but, but as far as like any kind of professional music background, no. If you were to think back to maybe some of those artists or bands who kind of left their musical fingerprints on you in, in some of your earlier days, who would you cite? Oh, well, you know, the singer songwriter artist of the 70s, I would say, is really when I kind of started kind of cutting my teeth. People like James Taylor and Jackson Brown, Dan Fogelberg, and, you know, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and all that. And I actually learned to play guitar uh, listening to John Denver. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Uh, I taught myself to play the guitar and then through a through a songbook just it was called instant fun with guitar and i just because i'm self-taught so i taught myself to play guitar and then i kind of moved on to um listening to um music and trying to figure out how to play the songs in it. and i was really into john denver at the time he was very big then yeah so i would uh, sit in my room with john denver albums and then you could also buy the songbook that accompanied the album you know it had the guitar boxes on the top right and um i think we've got some over here on my book yeah (laughs) and i would sit there and just try to play along with the album you know and that's kind of how i first started learning to play guitar and then from from john denver i think kind of graduated to some more some things that were a little more complex you know like james taylor as far as stylistically you know finger picking cut stuff and um and then fogelberg and all of that stuff that really was um there's a lot of poetry in that, you know, and so I would say that that kind of California country scene of the Laurel Canyon scene was really influential on me. I was in high school then, you know, and um, I started writing songs when I was in the ninth grade, tenth grade, you know, really kind of started dabbling with, I was really quiet, introverted, was 14, you know, found it as a way of a form of expression, you know, just write down my, my thoughts and my feelings about everything. And so I just kind of discovered songwriting as this way of communicating, you know, and it was very therapeutic. And I found that, you know, when you sit down to write, you had to confront the way you felt about stuff uh, because you're going to write about it. So, Oh, how do I feel about this or that or or this person or, you know, being in love or whatever it was. And then Mm -hmm. also kind of discovering what you feel about things, you know, in the process. So it was, that was kind of my uh, journey into the realm of songwriting, you know. Do you remember the, the first song that you wrote? Yeah. It was a song called Lady Wind. (laughs) Really? Wow. Okay. It was a a love song. So I I had, um, the summer before I went into high school, I moved to a new town. So, Mm -hmm. which was Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So 
and all of my friends that were going, everybody going into high school together, and I left, you know, so it was very kind of isolating, and I was kind of left out of that significant time in your life where you're going into high school. And I left behind right. all my friends and and then also a girlfriend and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, but yeah, that that first song was was a love song called Lady Wind. That's a great title. Uh, you almost could repurpose that title. Yeah, I can't, uh, without, I don't know if I can detach it from the, the very first, <laughs> not that great song that I wrote. Yeah. You know, you brought up John Denver. I, I'm still such a, a huge fan of his work. I, I had the pleasure of seeing him in concert about four months before he died. Really? I was still living in LA and, uh, man, every once in a while I'll put on some of those old John Denver albums and it's his sense of melody yeah. uh, is just utterly incredible. Very, very gifted. So most people don't think to themselves, you know, one day I want to be a producer or write a song for, for someone else. Initially, musically speaking, what, what were your goals? What were your ambitions? What were you wanting to do? Uh, like I said, I, I, I wrote songs all through high school and I really didn't know that they're could be a um an occupation in that i wanted to be involved in music but i didn't know how and so i actually went to lsu louisiana state majored in landscape architecture which was kind of more like it was something i was interested in but it was really kind of like something to quote fall back on about three years in to that curriculum i was just like you know i don't want to be a landscape architect Uh, i want to be in music at some point, it kind of dawned on me that you don't really, when you're pursuing any kind of career, but, you know, pursuing your passions, you don't do something else to fall back on. You kind of have to kind of jump in head first. And right. Um, right. I had found out, someone had told me about this school in Nashville, which was Belmont College. It's Belmont University now, but it was Belmont College and that they had a music business program and they had a recording studio and all and. I just didn't even know that kind of thing even existed. And so yeah. I drove up to Nashville to check out the school with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And and when I got here, I, you know, I kind of toured the campus and I was like, oh, this feels like where I need to be. So I applied for school and then I came up here. My friend that was going to apply with me backed out. And um, so I just came up oh. here by myself and I didn't know anybody, mm-hmm. which for me, was quite a bold move because as I said, I'm not, wasn't very um, bold or extroverted or anything, you know? So I came up here, I didn't even know who my roommates were going to be in, in the dorm, you know, but what I thought I wanted to be was a singer songwriter, write songs and sing them for people. And, and then when I got to Nashville, which is such a songwriter's town, and I really wanted to try to, you know, hone in on the, the craft of songwriting and that became more important to me than pursuing an artist, you know, getting on the artist path. So because at some point I just thought, you know, I can write songs all day that and sing them. But can mm-hmm. I write something that's that somebody else liked so much that they would want to sing it? Wow. And that kind of became my North Star. And the challenge for me was like, I want to, especially being around just seasons, you know, songwriters that that's what they do. They write songs and other people record them. And it's like, that was a, um, an occupation. 
Well, and, and a writer can have such a different career and a different trajectory than than an artist because most artists don't stick around very long they don't last very long whereas a writer can have a very long career and and uh, i've had the pleasure of talking with a number of uh, songwriters and they've shared their approach to things and i've heard some songwriters talk about how they'll pick up their instrument or you know if it's a guitar sit at a piano and just play and Oftentimes a, a melody will emerge in a, a lyrical pattern and then they'll write the lyrics accordingly. And others say, I don't want my instrument anywhere near me because it's going to dictate the, the melody to me more than I would care to. And some are somewhere in the middle and others have other approaches. For you, when it comes to writing, what's that like for you? What's that process like for you as a writer? Well, at any given time, it's it's kind of been in all of those that every way that you've described, but I would say, generally speaking, the way I tend to work is well. First of all, I keep a title book. So if if I, if I have a a lyrical idea, something pops in my head, I write it in that book, you know. And that might be all. That oh, okay. might be it. Yeah. And it w- might not be attached to any sort of musical, you know, any kind of melody or you know, anything. It just might be an idea. Right. Generally speaking. I would say I pick up an instrument and start noodling and coming up with a whatever, a, you know, a few chords and then sing some sort of melody over the top of it, whatever is just kind of pops in my head and some days are better than others. <laughs> and then if it's something that kind of catches my ear enough that I think there might be something to it, then a lot of times I will go to that title book first and see if there's a, is there an idea in there that fits with this music idea that I've just that I've come up with. And then if not, then I go on from there. Rarely have I ever really been successful at writing music to an existing lyric. So so oh, really? yeah, for so I would say generally speaking that the music comes first or the music in conjunction with a title, you know, that kind of go hand in hand, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or a lyrical phrase sure. or something like that. So everything mm-hmm is pretty much inspired by a piece of music for the most part. Do you recall the first song that you got paid for? Cause that's a big deal for a writer. Like, Hey, this is my first first cut paid yeah. project here. Yeah. The first song that I ever had recorded was on an, an album with an artist named Billy Sprague. Oh yeah. I wrote a song called What a Way to Go, which was a song that, um, so when I was, you know, knocking around Nashville in the early days, a lot of times I'd sit around and come up with ideas that, and kind of purposely not finish them because, you know, the big thing a lot of in Nashville is, is getting together with other people to write. And, right. and the best thing you can do is get together with a recording artist to write because you've eliminated a lot of the middle, mm. you know, I would, right kind of have these half-baked ideas and I might even have a verse and a chorus, you know, lyrically or whatever, but I, then I would just mm-hmm. sit on it. And and that was the case with um, Billy Sprague. He was doing his first album and I was put with him to work on, try to come up with stuff for his record. And so I came in to the writing mm-hmm. session with that idea mm-hmm. and he liked it. And so then we finished it together. And so, yeah, that was through. I, I now had a song that was, that was recorded. Yeah. And then, um, the the next two cuts that I got were on Amy Grant's Unguarded record. 
that being at that time um, was really a for for any writer in town, regardless of what genre, and to have songs on an Amy Grant record was was significant because she sold a lot of records, you know. So it was there were coveted mm-hmm. spots that kind of started a um, kind of a lifelong relationship with Amy. Ultimately, you know, but um, yeah, those. Uh, so yeah, those were my first. Those were my first. I consider my first big cuts. Were on, was on that unloaded album. That's kind of cool to you know be able to point back to those, and I get that I, that must be pretty neat to. Uh, kind of look back at that period of time. And I know you got really tied into the the contemporary Christian music genre, obviously doing a lot of writing for Amy and also for Michael W. Right. Smith. And I was going to ask you how that came about, but obviously that came through through Amy. And I would imagine you connected with Michael W. Smith from your connection with Amy. Yeah, sort of. I mean, the way I connected to both of them was through um, their management which was uh, Blanton Harold, mm. And I had, um, uh, Mike Blanton had kind of taken me, taken me in and was kind of networking me with, um, he's kind of responsible for the cuts on Amy's record. So, so uh, gotcha. Blanton Harold managed Amy and Michael. And so, and Michael used to play mm. for Amy. And then Michael right. had a couple of albums and then he was getting ready to do his own solo tour, his first solo tour. And so, so Mike Blanton, he saw like me being in Michael's band. So, so I, I kind of auditioned for the band and went out on Michael's first tour as kind of a um, auxiliary player. I, I played guitar and keyboards and sang vocals and stuff. And on that tour is is when me and Michael started writing together, which was kind of Mike Blanton's plan, I think was put us out there. And then, okay. and yeah. Um, yeah, we just started writing together. And was that for the big picture that you started writing for? Yeah, that was, that was the first record that I worked on with him. And a lot of that was written from the road. Mm. And, and the thing with Michael though, Michael writes music mm-hmm. He doesn't write lyrics in that relationship with the exception of, uh, I think maybe one song. It was primarily a, I was the lyricist and he was the music gotcha. writer. There's a song called rocket town that we oh, uh, yeah. contributed, contributed musically to, but um, yeah, for the most part, he would have all these songs and then he would give them to me and say, you know, see if I could come up with something. So I, yeah, I took the, um, the lyricist role in that relationship. Very for the cool. Most part when the big picture came out, I think it was my senior year in high school, but I was always that kind of quasi music nerd who loved to read the liner notes. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I, which is something I really miss in the digital age. I mean, I still buy vinyl and stuff, but I miss liner notes. (laughs) I really do. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I, I just remember seeing on so many albums that I had seen your name, either, you know, as a producer or a co-writer or a writer you did so many projects were involved in so many projects with, with Amy and with, with Michael. When you look back on that, that period of time, kind of in the, that infancy in those earlier days with them, are, are there any projects that you look back on with maybe a particular fondness? Cause there's some huge albums and really some seminal albums, even in their very, very uh, respectable catalogs. Are, are there any that you look back on? I think wow, that was that was special. That was something that was very special. 
Uh, yeah, well, those, the project, well, you know, the, the big picture record was the first time where I was kind of free to kind of do whatever in some sense. And Michael was really receptive to the stuff that I would turn in to him. And, you know, to end up writing a full album with someone, with an artist, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I, even still, I thrive on is, yeah. is kind of holding up somewhere and just, just coming up, like creating this body of work and a, like a complete package. And I think being able to create an album with someone, you know, mm -hmm. was a, that was really a, um, I have a, a great fondness for that record is that being the first one to allow me to do that. Yeah. And then I would say the Lead Me On record that Amy Grant mm. did. Yeah. But I think back on that fondly because I feel like that's where me and Amy kind of became writing collaborators. Really? Okay. You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, like where we actually, I mean, I had had, had songs recorded by her, mm -hmm. like I said, on Unguarded, but I didn't know her well then, you know, and those were songs that were written I mean, one of them was written with um, Rich Mullins and, and one was uh, written with a friend of mine, Billy Simon. And, you know, there were songs that were pitched for an album. Right. To get into this kind of in the trenches of writing with an artist and just connecting with Amy on that level was, I have a great fondness for that. And like I said, it led to a kind of a lifetime collaboration. And yeah. from a um, career standpoint, it helped to legitimize me as a writer, you know. Uh, and if you look at both of those albums in in their catalogs and their careers, they're both standout albums. I mean, uh, even Big Picture, it was a big shift in, you know, from what Michael had done previously. It was more pop-oriented. Those songs still hold up today because melodically they're they're great pop songs i mean at their core that's got to be kind of satisfying to be able to look back at those and uh it is and michael he wrote great melodies that were very mm -hmm. inspiring to write lyrics to oh yeah okay. because his melodies are very lyrical so that was fun and it was and it was also fun to have been on the road and write all those and then then go and record them and be a part of the album, you know, and get to sing on the album and do it. And then he did another tour. He did a big picture tour. Yeah. And I went out on that tour too. And so it was fun to um, have spent all that time, you know, I was still pretty green in the um, industry and to have all those songs, to be able to write those songs and then go out on tour and then see everybody every night singing them. Yeah. That wow. was like, wow, what a thrill that was. It's like, it was just, the sense of ownership, even though I was not the one in the spotlight, which is totally fine with me. Yeah, <laughs> but right, right. to be kind of a fly on the wall and get to see how and talk to people and how different songs had had some sort of impact on them or, mm. you know, or whatever it was. It was like, wow, that was really um, kind of spoke to me about the power of music and how far reaching a song can be. At what point or was there a point where you said to yourself, I think I've made it not only doing what I want to do, but I've not that you got to the point, Oh, I'm done working. I'm retired, but more like I'm getting where I want to go career wise. W did you have that moment? Are you not there yet? Are you like, what is that like for you in, in kind of in your, your timeline? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I was going to say, well, I'll, I'll let you know when I start <laughs> to, <laughs> when I feel like I've made it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, when you're in the middle of it, it I mean, for me, I was never one to just go, okay, I, I've never been one to rest on my laurels. So right, right. it was like, okay, well, that was then, but now what? And mm -hmm. is all that going to go away or was that a fluke or, you know? So I never really felt like I have arrived because mm -hmm. I just feel like I'm just still on the journey. Not to shortchange. I mean, there have been some, some things that have happened that have been moments where I'm just like, wow, but it's more like, I can't believe this has happened and how did this mm. happen? And do you still feel a sense of that after all of these years? Definitely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I still do. I mean, I always feel like I'm the weakest link in the room, when mm. I'm with some, yeah. you know, and I, I guess there's a part of me that, that never wants to not feel that because it's probably over at that point. And I just mm. feel like I like to go feeling like, I still have a lot to learn. I'm self-taught, so I really feel, a lot of times, feel unqualified. I do um, recognize my own limitations, you know, mm -hmm. and try to go beyond them, but also recognize them and, and go, okay, I've, I've really stepped out of my own. <laughs> so it's good to step out yeah. of your comfort zone. You For know? sure. But sometimes it's like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of in, in the <laughs> deep end. I shouldn't be here. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, I understand that I, I taught myself to play guitar. You, you learned by listening to John Denver. I learned by by playing along to Black Sabbath albums because the oh, well. power chords was all I could play yeah. in, there in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, I'm such a lover of Christmas music. And back in 89, when Michael W. Smith put out his first Christmas album, I was immediately drawn to to one of those songs, uh, the song all is well ah. has stood out to me and in my humble opinion for what it's worth, I think it's one of the most beautiful and best Christmas songs to emerge from the last few decades. Mm. It is an exceptional song melodically lyrically and the production is phenomenal. All these decades later, and I didn't realize until I was doing my research that you co-wrote that one with Michael. Yeah. When you guys were writing that, do you, did you realize that you really had something that was exceptional? Well, first of all, me and Michael never wrote in the same room together. Oh, really? So okay. he typically, he would send me a piece of music and then I would go away and do my thing, drive around, drive around in my car or <laughs> walk around. And so that particular song, I was out in California and I got a call from Michael and he had this, he was doing this Christmas record and he had this song and he wanted to, to send it to me and wanted me to put a lyric to it. Mm -hmm. And I forget why I was out there, but I was out there with my, I had small kids at the time mm -hmm. and we were out in California and kind of on a vacation, we were going to go to Disneyland and do, you gotcha. know, some stuff. And that was in the days of, um, he would have to fax, I mean, um, FedEx the cassette to me or something. So he would kind of overnight it, you know, and send it to us. So we'll send it to me and I'll listen to it. And so I, I would try to just kind of listen to it enough and got it in my head. But mm -hmm. I can remember walking around Disneyland with that song in my head and trying to write lyrics. While I was really, yeah, <laughs> wow, and um, uh, so a lot of that was written that way, 
and then kind of go home and kind of fill in the blanks and come up with it. Because if I remember right, I think it was fairly, um, he, you know, it needed to be somewhat of a quick turnaround. I don't know if we could, you know, getting permission to drop a song like that in a, in a podcast is when record companies get involved. So I'll encourage everybody to go listen to it. Or maybe I'll put a link uh, in the show notes so people can hear. Because if, if people don't know this song, it's a standout piece of music. I, I think it's, like I said, one of the greatest Christmas songs in, in the modern age. And uh, and that whole, actually that whole album has, I think holds up very, very well. It's very beautifully done. Yeah, he's got a knack for that. As I was prepping, I was I came across that it was the recently the 25th anniversary for for Behind the Eyes by by Amy Grant. And I know that's yeah. an album that you were very very involved in with the writing and everything. You know, looking back on that album, which is again, it's another standout album in her catalog. What's that like to kind of reminisce? I know that you've you've done some other uh, shows and things like that where you kind of were digging into some of those great uh, stories and memories. What, what's that like for you to, to see an album like that turn 25 and uh, to know that you were a part of it? What, what do you think about uh, when you think about that album? Well, the great thing for me, I mean, that album, uh, so I had been on the road with Amy. I had gone out and was the, her band leader for the, um, the House of Love tour. Then when she was talking about doing another record and we started writing, I mean, we had already been, you know, collaborators of some and so but she was talking about doing another another record and we started um kind of writing some songs while we were on the road and then when we got off the road we just had some talks uh, had some talks with amy because it was leading towards she was even talking about me producing i remember at one point saying to her i was like you know when we're on the road and we're you know when you just sit down and listen to music that you want to listen to it's not the kind of music that you record it's you're listening to Joni Mitchell and Carol King and Bonnie Raitt and all these. It's like, have you ever thought about doing music in that vein? And, she, and you know, she said, well, I thought, you know, maybe one day I thought I'd do that. And so, you know, well, why not just take a sharp right turn and just do it now? But have conversations like that. And then a, another conversation being, um, you know, all of these artists that you listen to. It's in a lot of ways, they're very vulnerable you kind of feel like you're getting a peek inside their diary. Are you ready to do something like that? And she said, yeah, I think I am. You know, so conversations like that is kind of what led us down the path of like kind of digging into some more kind of personal places. Through the process of that, we started writing a lot of songs and we, we wrote, I don't know, maybe 20 songs. Wow. Over the course of, you know, or she came in with songs that she had written by herself mm -hmm. that were in a really personal place. And then we started going in and recording those songs, that, you know, as we would write them. And so the project spanned over you know, maybe a year or so. And so wow. well, by the time we looked up, we had recorded maybe 16 songs. It was part of making this record. And then, of course when we kind of put a batch of them together and turned it into the label, they were half of the label was not receptive to it because oh, there really? was a, where's, where's baby, baby, where's, hey, right. you know? Right. So what happened was all of that stuff that we did together, the stuff that I worked on from those 16 songs, there were like five of them ended up on the record. And then they brought Keith Thomas in to come and do 
to, to do some stuff and do kind of bridge the gap, get some stuff right. that was more, more pop. Uh, Cause we, I was going for more of an organic acoustic yeah. driven, you know, kind of thing. So flash forward to um, 25 years later, they put out this edition and they put all the songs on it. So on the, um, mm. on the special release. So it's kind of like for the first time, all these songs have been reunited again. And, and so, because I mean, obviously there was a, there was a certain amount of disappointment when I was not able to um, put all the stuff that we had done on one album and make it, you know, there again, going back to that body of work, getting in, holding up with someone and coming up with a, a body of work. So that was the cool thing about the 25th anniversary is they put out this, triple vinyl limited edition that had all the songs on it. And they put out this digital release that has all the songs on it, all the songs from the album. And then all of those songs that of, of ours that we worked on that didn't make it on that original album. So I saw that in it and I saw in the parentheses, it says something like the Wayne Kirkpatrick version. So yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I haven't finished listening to the whole album yet, but I definitely will go back and revisit some of those tracks. So that's gotta be, kind of satisfying to know that they're finally not sitting in a vault somewhere and people can get their ears on them and catch that original vision for that album before the label got in there and mucked everything. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and some of that, we were just kind of left to our own to just go and create something and, you know, Mm -hmm. not really thinking about the commercial viability of, Sure. You know, we're just trying to go in and just write something, do something that felt true. I don't fault the record label for making the decisions that they made. I get it. It's a business. And Amy had this certain persona and, you know, right. and she's following up songs that were pop of a certain type of style, you know. So mm-hmm. I can see where it would be jolting to just kind of do this. But it's nice to to uh, that people talk about that that album and talk about songs yeah on it as it being uh, something that resonated with them. I think that album came out the year I was married. So I remember that, that CD being on as, uh, as my wife and I would clean our apartment back in Costa Mesa yeah. <laughs> back in the day. That's a, uh, yeah, it brings back some, some great memories. Now you had written a bunch of songs along with Tommy Sims and, uh, and Gordon Kennedy that got recorded by Garth Brooks for his Chris Gaines album. How, how did that come about? Because that's, um, I, I know Gordon alluded to this when I had him on my podcast several months ago, because there's some great, great songs. And I, I still have that CD. What, what's the story behind those songs that you guys wrote? Yeah, well, at, at one point, me and Gordon and sometimes Tommy were kind of pursuing a, a possible band, you know, doing a, becoming a band and, and doing an album, you know, going out and doing the thing, try to get a record deal and all that. So we started putting together, we started writing a bunch of stuff and then going in and recording it with the idea of, you know, pitching it to some labels and see if we could get any mm-hmm. traction on it. And those demos that we did, which were, I mean, to say they were demo, I mean, we did them like we were doing an album. So uh, uh, Garth had that project and he would drive around and listening to it in his truck as he would say, you know, and just kind of was really into the the project and into those songs. Mm -hmm. And then when he had this idea to do this Chris Gaines project, he wanted to do a lot of those songs that we had done for that band project and asked permission 
to do that. And so a lot of those tracks on that record are the tracks that we cut for the band. Nice. And then just he just wow. came in and, and put his vocal on it instead of really? instead of oh, wow. mine or Gordon's or Tommy's. Yeah. So wow. um, several of those were from, as uh, let's see, Digging for Gold, It Don't Matter to the Sun. And then we wrote some more that as a result, you know, if he might say, oh, I'm mm -hmm. looking for a song like this or, you know, mm -hmm. and we go try to write something and, and then pitch it to him. And some of those got on it. It was a fun project. It was a weird project, you know, because we weren't really sure <laughs> what was going it's on. Different. It's different. Yeah. But it was a great, great experience. And we, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was one of those things where I don't think a lot of people were ready to accept Garth doing something that wasn't country per se. It was great working with him and chasing all of that. I have nothing but fond memories of, of making that. Yeah, I think it's an exceptional project. And I the songs are just really, really good. And I think if you have good songs, a, a you know, a project like that, it it, it doesn't go out of style. And so I, I know it in the in the arc of, of his career, that's probably one that makes people scratch their heads. But when you get when you strip away all of that aspect of it and just focus on the songs, they're great. I mean, it's it's they're fantastic songs. So that's got that must have been really fun to uh to hear Garth sing one of your songs. He'd come out here every day and we'd sit around and work on the stuff and then go in and try. Oh, the other, uh, another song, uh, Lost in You, which was kind of the, the first single, which was a single for a minute, you know, <laughs> really. We had done that song and on the demo, Tommy had sung it. When Garth wanted it, we just took the track and then Garth came out here and it was just me and Gordon out here. He said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try a vocal on that. I was like, do we need to change the key or anything? Because it was high. He said, no, I think I can do it. And, um, and he said, and I don't mind sounding. He said, tell me if it sounds bad. He said, I don't mind sounding like a fool in front of you guys, but I don't want to sound like a fool in, the, in front of the rest of the world. <laughs> it's like, okay. It's fair. So he That's went fair. out and started singing it and he was singing in this falsetto and kind of up there. And I was like, Wow. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Well, you know, we yeah. were we were kind of all surprised. And in fact, when we started playing that for people and asking them who they thought this was that was singing, nobody guessed that it was Garth Brooks. I would imagine that would be the case. Yeah, that's really cool. And I know that uh, that you and Tommy and and Gordon would go on to write "Change the World," and was just a massive, massive, massive hit. What was that like for you when I know I know when Nona originally recorded that mm -hmm. when you found out that Clapton wanted to do that and as somebody from you know our generation Clapton's like he's one of the guitar heroes yeah. you know and and uh, what was that like to be a co-writer on a song that most of the world had heard that was just everywhere well first of all yeah in fact I was just in the grocery store yesterday and, and it was playing in the grocery store in Publix. <laughs> um, I was like, oh yeah. First of all, that song, it, it kind of came about the, the initial writing of it even was just kind of, I don't want to say haphazardly, but, um, but it was um, just organically. It was, uh, it was an, an idea that Tommy had started and it was just kind of sitting there. And then mm -hmm. when we were doing that band project, we thought, oh, this might be a good song to do. I had uh, 
kind of taken it at one point and started messing with it and kind of came up with some lyric ideas for it, you know, and kind of had it. So it was kind of sitting around and then Gordon was going to be going at that time. Tommy was in Indiana for some reason living there and Gordon was going to go and uh, they were going to put down a demo of that song and maybe consider it for this band project they were doing. And then I was like, he said, can you give me the song? I said, well, it's not finished. He said, well, just give me what you have and I'll finish the rest of it on my drive up to Indiana. You know, so it was kind of this passing the baton kind of thing to begin with. So they went up there and they did a, a little demo on it. That was probably five years earlier before the song was recorded, wow. you know, and you know, the band project that we were doing, it, it never really materialized. And, um, actually, ironically, that song was in a batch of the songs that we were continually pitching to a record label and they wanted to hear, I don't know if we hear a single yet, you know, and then, so we put that in and they just said they didn't think they heard a single and change the world was in that, wow. you know, anyway, uh, that song just kind of went through the, the publishing cycles of, of being pitched around town and, but, you know, and that's why eventually Tony Brown, who's Winona's producer heard it and was going to be recording it, decided he was going to record that on Winona before he recorded it. He had, um, this woman named Kathy Nelson, who was a music supervisor for touchstone pictures and uh, out in LA, but I was in town and, and, um, Tony just said, let me show you the song I'm going to cut on Winona. And that's kind of, that stuck in her head when she was uh, looking for a song for a movie that was this a John Travolta movie, and they were she was looking for a vehicle for Eric Clapton and Babyface to do together, and so you know, wow. so all of that kind of happened organically, and then we we got a copy of the recording after they had done it. I remember listening to it in my studio and going, wow, that sounds really good. I said, I don't know if I can, I don't know if that would work on the radio, but it sounds really good. And then it was, it was released and it just kind of had this life of its own. And and it was like, it kept Mm -hmm. climbing the charts and then it kept hanging around on the charts, you know? And it was like on the AC chart at the time, it was like number one for 13 weeks. And it was really kind of like, wow, what is happening? (laughs) What is going on? You know, it played on the radio. It was actually, ironically, was at the same time that um, I was working on the Behind the Eyes record with Amy. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, wow. um, okay. 95, 96. Huh. It just, you know, from there, and then it got these Grammy nominations, and it was... Uh, when I had Gordon on, he talked about how he was going to be doing something with his old high school or something, and he called, and they put him on hold, and that song was playing on the whole music. (laughs) (laughs) It was just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. You won a Grammy. That was your first Grammy, right? For that song. Cause that was song of the year. Yeah. Uh That's gotta be pretty cool. Your brother, Carrie is a film director and producer and screenwriter. And he's, you know, worked on obviously lots of great projects. I didn't realize he had done James and the giant peach, which I love that project and a lot of others. And you guys teamed up to write Something Rotten. Was that uh, 2015 or so? And I saw it back, as I mentioned before we started recording, I saw it back in either 2018 or 2019. And it's such an incredible and fun production. I had read that you guys wrote something like 54 songs for that. 
something crazy like that. How, how did you guys, how did you get involved? Like how did that whole thing come about? So I went to a, a magnet school in Baton Rouge called Baton Rouge high um, in high school. And so you had to declare a major, you know, it was kind of a, like a, basically a college prep school. So you declared mm-hmm. a major and um, my major was theater and same oh, for my okay. brother. So we, we've always been into theater and mm-hmm. ever since we started writing, even separately, we both had this ambition to one day write a musical. So it's something that we talked about wanting to do for a long time. And then we would bounce around ideas for if we wrote a musical, what would it be about? You know, we kind of did that. Now, his career, he was a screenwriter and, and then directing. And then my career, I was, you know, doing my producing and songwriting. You know, mm-hmm. so we were on different paths. But every once in a while, our paths would cross and we might work on something together. So we talked about a few ideas, but this this idea, which we just called the Shakespeare musical for the longest time, kind of formulated again organically. Any, I'd be out in LA and we'd, hey, I had a, another idea for that Shakespeare thing. What about this? And oh, that would be funny. We should write that one day. <laughs> right. And we had those kinds of short conversations like that off and mm-hmm. on for about 15 years. Really? Yeah. There's a guy named Kevin McCollum who's a, a producer who known for a long time. My brother and Kevin worked at Disney World together in their 20s. My brother did street theater, and Kevin was in a Broadway review show. This is the the long backstory, but my brother ended up going to California, going to film school. Kevin ended up going to California, and he was in film school briefly. And so they remained friends. And then I would go out to California every once in a while. And so I met Kevin through the years. You know, so we, so we knew Kevin. Kevin eventually left, and he got into producing theater. And his first show that he produced that went to Broadway was Rent. Really? Yeah. Wow. And in fact, we went, me and my brother went to see Rent in 96. It was a, a tech rehearsal or something when it was just getting ready to come out. And right. then we were with Kevin after we saw that. And then Carrie said, you know, me and Wayne are thinking about writing a musical. And mm-hmm. so that was 96. And James and the Giant Peach was out and Change the World yeah. was out, you know. And oh, Kevin said, well, yeah. I'd, love, I'd love to see what you guys come up, came up with, you know. Sure. Okay, so we had this open door. Kevin went on to produce many other shows, successful shows on Broadway, Avenue Q, In the Heights, Drowsy Chaperone, among many others. Wow. So he was a bona fide top dog producer. At some point, we said, you know, if we're ever going to write a musical, we just need to carve out time to start doing it. And we have this open door. But then the big question was, okay, how do you pitch a musical? We didn't know. It's like, do we yeah. do we have to write the whole thing and demo everything? You know, how do we do it? So I mean, he was like, let's ask Kevin. <laughs> so called Kevin and said, what would you need? You know, we have this music idea. And, and he, that's when he said, we know Avenue Q was three songs and an idea. And In the mm. Heights was a concept and all that. And it's like, well, we've got that. Can we pitch you our idea? We had uh, kind of over the past couple of years or so come up with a few song ideas and mm-hmm. you know where we were ready to pitch something so we just yeah. um when kevin was out in california and i flew out to california and we all met and uh, went to dinner and pitched him the idea 
and then went back to my brother's place and I sat down and played some song ideas. And they weren't even completed songs. It was like enough to show, here's how we write. Here's what right, it would be. Right, right. And then uh, he kind of took that back with him. And then a couple of weeks later, called and said, I think you guys are on to something. And we should talk oh, wow. about moving forward. Which I was like, uh-oh, now we have to write this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now it just that, got real very yeah, quickly. <laughs> but that was, yeah. that was 2010 when we started um, kind of seriously talking with Kevin about doing it. Mm -hmm. And then he said, I've got an, I got an idea for a director. I think would be great for this. And he called Casey Nicola, who had just come off of Book of Mormon and oh, wow. direct, you know, and, and we pitched it to Casey and he liked it. And he's like, yeah, I'm in, you know, it's like, wow. Talk about feeling like the weakest link in the room. <laughs> <speaking> <laughs> up. And um, so from like 2010, till it opened we spent the next four and a half years writing it my goodness and then it opened in 2015 and it went yeah straight into broadway so it was quite a um a learning experience and an adventure but it was great i mean it was probably the hardest thing i've ever done mm -hmm. times 10 uh, <laughs> just had no idea but also one of the most satisfying when it's done oh sure an incredible experience. Writing a song, uh, you know, a pop song, you have four minutes, whatever, three and a half, four minutes to, to tell a story. When you're writing a two plus hour musical production, you've got a lot more time to tell that story. And there's a lot more that goes into that. When you were writing, you know, for a Broadway musical, how different was it? than the writing you had done more in the pop form. Was it harder to tell the story in a longer form? What was that like for you guys? No, I think what was the hardest to wrap my head around at first was or to realize is, you know, when you're writing pop songs or any kind of commercial three and a half minute, four minute song, you're, mm -hmm. you're telling the whole story within that three and a half to four minutes or, you know, and it's a listening experience. And that's what you're doing. So you're, so you're trying to, to kind of create in this little song bubble, you know, this, this isolated experience with the song right. and with theater, a song is part of a bigger picture and it's a part of a bigger telling of a story and mm -hmm. songs for the most part in theater are there to also move the, move the story along. So, right. so you have to be kind of aware of, of that part of the storytelling. It's like to just sit, okay, now we sing a song and, and to sit mm -hmm. in a moment in a song is not the best way for a, a storytelling moment. Yeah. And so that, that was one of the things that having to um, kind of reprogram the way I write mm -hmm. because, and you're also like, we had such great teachers because we were working with seasoned theater people in the producer right. and the director, but we might write a song and he would go, okay, well that's a song for this character, but there are three other people on stage while this is going on. What are they doing? It's like, Oh, Oh, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of stepping back and thinking in terms of a visual experience as well mm -hmm. as musical right. experience so it's not it's not enough to just write a song that has a good hook and a good right. lyric you know it needs to speak to the character 
and then move the story along so that when you start the song and when you end the song, something has happened that has moved the story. So that was something that I that I had to learn along the way and still do because, you know, you, when you're writing pop songs for 30 years or whatever, there's a little bit of that trail pony. The song needs to do this and it's got to do the end. It's not always the case in theater. When you were in in the thick of it, I would imagine it would it would become difficult to to stay objective and say, okay, are we telling the full story? Obviously, you're telling some of the story in dialogue, some through song. I would imagine it might be almost when you're in the thick of it, disorienting. Like, am I? Are we really accomplishing everything we need to accomplish so this thing is complete and tells everything we want to say? But so it was great that you had other people to say okay, to help see the bigger picture and even the example that you cited, okay, what are the other people on stage doing? Um, yeah, I, I would imagine that would be really difficult once you're right in the midst of that to kind of keep your bearings and saying, are we going in the right direction here? Did you ever wrestle with that at all? Well, we did. And partly because when we went, when we started this project, it was an idea and we had mm-hmm. kind of the tent poles and the characters and we had an overall story, but it was still being written. And so you're kind of the reason we wrote over 50 songs and some not all completed, but but various forms of them and some that were like various versions of the same song. Some Mm -hmm. of that is because when we first started, we were writing in a vacuum. We didn't have the full story that you were writing to. So we might write a song. Um, Oh, Shakespeare could sing a song about all these words that he's made up. You know, we write this whole song. (laughs) We had a song called Words You've Never Heard until you heard of me. And, (laughs) but that song, as we developed the story more and developed the character of Shakespeare more, where he became more like a, a rock star. It's like, well, this kind of song doesn't really work for that. So we need to throw that out. We need to write this other song. That's more of him doing like, which we ended up with was a song called willpower, which was Shakespeare in the park doing his greatest hits, you know, kind of yes. thing. And and being more like a James Brown kind of, you know, with his posse. And so that was kind of and something that we learned is like not writing in a vacuum because you might write songs and it might be a perfectly fine song, but it doesn't service the story or the character at all. I equated that process because like I said it took four four and a half years to write it I felt like I went to college and so the stuff that I was doing in my freshman year versus what I was doing in my senior year it became a lot more clear to like pinpoint Uh, a target and what would needs to be written so a song there's another song in that show called we see the light that the Puritans (laughs) sing and that was something that was written in the kind of 11th hour just before we kind of went to Broadway with it. And that was a lot easier to write because we, we knew what we needed and we knew what it needed to say and what it, how it needed to service the story and how it needed to um, service the characters and, and feed that, you know, so just that in and of itself. Yeah. In the early days, it's like, are we really, are we telling the right, are we saying the right things? Are we, um, until we just fleshed it out. But well, and it's so well done the the music is is so incredibly catchy but the lyrics just (laughs) they kill me sometimes and uh i can tell you guys just had an absolute blast during the writing because 
it's pretty cheeky. We have some good uh, family friends, the Den Hartogs, and they're just huge, huge fans huh. of the show. And I was telling our friend Corinne that uh, that I was going to have you on as a guest. And uh, so I told her, I said, you know, talk to your sisters. What what would be something good to ask? And they thought specifically of all of the, the references that you guys put into other shows, the little Easter eggs, so to speak. And because there are so many of them. And sometimes I didn't catch them until after I'm like, oh, that's what that meant. I'm slow sometimes. Yeah. But for all of those references, did you guys, did you ever get any feedback maybe from other other shows, other producers, you know, like, hey, you know, just kind of you're ribbing on them a little bit. Did you ever get any kind of feedback or, or any kind of responses from anybody? Nothing negative. There was one night when we were still up there when the show was uh, maybe in previews or, or just open. And um, I remember Tom Kitt, who is a composer uh, who wrote Next to Normal uh, and some other musicals. He's, he's a pretty um, significant composer. He came to see the show. And afterwards, he was asking a similar question. He was like, have you ever, did you worry about anybody um, kind of coming after you, you know, because you've referenced them or, you know, their, their music or something. And I said, um, I said, no, I said, we figured if we just included um, enough people, then you would, they would be offended if they weren't referenced. And, and he said, yeah. he said, yeah, I know I was, he was joking, but he's like, cause there was no, there were no Tom Kitt references, you know, but, but it was kind of like that. It was really a form of flattery. And um, yeah. because even though, you know, someone said one time that the show um, pokes fun at musicals by at, at the same time holding musicals in reverence, you know, oh, yeah. and and so that's, that kind of like is what it feels like. We we love musicals yeah. and appreciate mm-hmm. we appreciate musicals and the and the format. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that there is a certain element of ridiculousness in sure. breaking into yeah. song in the middle of a conversation. So we just use that to our advantage and poke fun at it. And then as far as references that we used, we, we tried to, um, we tried to have Easter eggs in there for the people. Like if you were like a Shakespeare scholar, there might be some things that you would get that nobody else did. But for the most part, we wanted to use references that were kind of common that you would, right. you would know, you might not even know that it, it originated with Shakespeare. It's so much right. embedded in our language and the same with, with um, music references. So ref- reference some um, musicals like, you know, the sound of music or cats or, or Les Mis mm-hmm. or, you know, some of these things that everybody's heard of. Um, so that became, you know, to try to create enough references that were just, that was kind of a commonality and uh, between everybody. And yeah, we did. I mean, it was, it was hard. And when it was, when it was not working, it was miserable. When it was working, yeah, we did. We had fun because we had fun trying to crack each other up. It's like if we both laughed when we was like, okay, I think maybe we'll use that one because that's where this was, <laughs> you know. So for something that took so long, so many years where you had this, uh, you and your brother had this idea germinating and being kicked around over the years, what was it like when, when you guys first sat in the audience and maybe it was a dress rehearsal or whatever, but saw the full production curtain up to a curtain down and heard everything presented in its polished show form. What was that like for you guys? Well, a mix of things for me. I mean, 
I feel like I spent the whole time being terrified most of the time because oh really yeah because I didn't know if it was any good mm. and or what are people going to think and now we're here we're we're in this Broadway world and what are we doing here you know all that kind <laughs> of stuff but then when right. we did the first kind of invited dress rehearsal seeing it all come to life. And then 20 minutes into our show, we have this big production number with the song, a musical. It's so good. And to our surprise, when it got to the end of that number and then it got a standing ovation and, wow. and I was like, and I remember thinking, cause I'd always heard and, and me personally had only witnessed in one other show, a show stopping number. You know, you always hear about these show stopping numbers and it was like, uh. wow is this a show shopping number? Is that, you know, cause mm. I didn't know. And so then the next night, another audience comes and listen, and it got to that point and then it got a standing ovation wow. again. And mm. then that kind of started happening every night. And then if it didn't get a standing ovation, it would get this round of applause, you know, this lengthy round of yeah. applause. And it was like just right, right. people just showing this, this love and appreciation for what we were doing, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. the people that got yeah. it, got it. And that was kind of otherworldly experience. I feel like that was my induction into the world of, of what theater could be from a writer's standpoint of like, this is why we do this. Not for the adoration, but just for the satisfaction of going, wow, just in my mind, I, all of those moments, I'm thinking of the four and a half years that we went through just some hellacious time of trying to get something right. And here we are. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I remember the struggle it was to get to here. But mm -hmm. look, look, we got to here. And look, they're all clapping in appreciation for that. So that was that was kind of an amazing sense of um, accomplishment. Well, and then to be nominated for several awards for that, uh, including... Tony, like this is not normal. We're out of the shoot. Somebody gets their first show on Broadway, loved, adored, not only by the audience, but by the, by the peers, by the community itself to be nominated for, for Tony's that had to be. So let me ask this question. When you were nominated for the Grammy for change the world. And when you guys were nominated for a Tony for something rotten, how similar and maybe how different were those from a, a personal perspective? Well, similar in the in the sense that it came out of nowhere for me. It's not something that I don't really think about that kind of stuff when you're working on something. You know, it's like the awards sure. and all that kind of stuff is not really why. That always seems so far away or so out of reach, you know, anyway. It's a nice thing to be recognized by your peers. For me... As far as the Tony, I mean, I, I kind of knew we got all these nominations, which was great. I, the chance of it winning, I knew, was slim because it's just not the type of show. There were other shows that were out that that kind of, you know, had more serious commentary on certain things, you know, just kind of. And ours was that we were a silly comedy. But for me, aside from all of that, the, the most significant thing for that for me was all through the writing of, of Something Rotten, which my kids were um, around, you know, then this was before they had all gone to college and all this, you know, so 
they were around and hearing, you know, I'd come home and I'd play demos of stuff that we had worked on. So they were a part of the developing of that show. They, they kind of saw it mm -hmm. from the ground up and they would hear things and they would right. comment on stuff. And when we did that song, a musical, we had the demo of it. I remember um, playing it and uh, we were around the dinner table and my daughter, one of my daughters said, I can just see this opening the Tonys. And, wow. and I was like, at that point, I was like, well, hold on. I don't even know if we'll ever get this to any kind of stage, much less a Broadway <laughs> stage, much less the Tony. Right. So hold on, you know, and she was like, no, I can I can just see it, you know, so it was really sweet. Flash forward to years later and we, we do this deal where we're working on Broadway and then the show is going to happen. And then the Tony stuff happens and what ends up happening is they decide to open the Tony Awards with that song. Get out of here. And my <laughs> whole family, we all went to the Tonys. So including my daughter who said, I can see this. And so sitting there <laughs> and seeing that, that moment where that song opened the Tony Awards and thinking back to sitting around the dinner table years earlier and my my daughter kind of dreaming that happening right. that was the tony award for me it wow. it you know that was the full circle moment and that's what i remember sure. i don't you know whether it wins or loses or what you know what do we got or not it's just that full circle moment of that happening incredible that was it for me what a great yeah. story i would have looked at her and said okay what what lottery numbers yeah. what I else use? are you seeing <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's incredible. I'm so glad you shared that. Um, now, back in 2000, just to change subjects a little bit as we kind of wind down our time a bit, in 2000, you release The Maple Room, mm -hmm. and it's been it's been 22 years since uh, your solo album yeah. came out. Have you kicked uh, the idea around about putting out a, another solo album? You've got you've got lots of friends in high places. <laughs> yeah. Any any thought about doing some writing and putting something out on your own? Um, I don't know. Sometimes, but not nothing seriously. I mean, that that whole project was um, in the back of my mind. I always had that. Like I said, I came to town thinking I wanted to be a singer songwriter. So at some point, I thought, yeah. oh, well, maybe yeah. that was kind of me scratching that itch. And mm -hmm. it was really a compilation of songs that I didn't think every anybody else would want to record. You know, that I'd written. So mm -hmm. it's like I'd write something and go. I don't know if anybody else would do this, but I would do this if I was an artist. So that was kind of that. And I do still have songs since then that I've had that I feel the same way about. No one's going to ever do this song, but I would. So I'd never say never, but it's time consuming. You, I mean, I'd want to do it right sure. if I was going to do it. And I'd want it to be able to match that record in terms of, not that it was a big record or anything, but the people that, that it resonated with the, with the, with with people and I'd want to be able to do you know be in the same headspace to be able to do that again you know so all of that so um there's there's no immediate plans to do that but I don't usually know what I'm doing from year to year <laughs> so well hopefully you won't wait another 22 <laughs> yeah. years to <laughs> I don't think I can <laughs> have you and your brother thought about um maybe this is a question you don't want me to ask but have you guys thought about doing another another musical well, we did, we did, we did Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, Mrs. Doubtfire, right. right. Yeah. And that one on the, um, 
the wild journey that that went on because of yeah. COVID, you know, and everything that, um, but that's what we, when we, um, after the something rotten run, we kind of got back into doing something else. Now that was adapting a movie into sure. a musical, but in terms of, have we thought about doing another original musical? Yes. We talk about it and we've got some things that we're knocking around. We're cool. still kind of in the thick of, of the Doubtfire thing because it's okay. opening in sure. England, you know, and we did tweaks to it in every incarnation of it. We would, we would tweak it and try to fix what was not working the first time or, you know, and we just, I was just over in England for two months because we were rehearsing and doing some rewrites on that. And it just, it just had its, a four week run in Manchester so I just got back from that about a, about a month ago and, wow. and now it's going to move into the West end. And so we're going to be going back and doing, you know, rehearsals for that and, and tweaking on that wherever we need to. But we're also um, talking about some other things once we get that behind us. Like I said, the Doubtfire, it'll have a tour yeah. next fall, a national tour in the States you know, we're still kind of giving birth to that one. It's, yeah, it's kind of like asking in the middle of giving birth, do you think about having any more kids? <laughs> and, uh, um, but, um, That's fair. but we, but we are, you know, and, yeah. um, and, and then there's some things that we're working on independently as well. I'm developing something here in Nashville with a local producer, but, you know, and, and he's developing, he's, you know, doing some, writing another movie right now and do, you know so we we kind of go back to our corners and regroup and do our yeah. do our things that we do independently and then we get back talk about what's the next thing that we can do together but oh, fun. we really love theater and mm -hmm. as long as as they will let us keep doing it i think we will keep doing it <laughs> very cool right out of high school a group of friends we we wanted to to write a musical and uh it got nowhere very quickly, but I had written a little love song called Every Other Day. 30-something years later, I still remember the melody. I'm like, man, that really could have been something. But everybody <laughs> kind of went their own ways. and uh, you know, Well, you know, it's never you, too late to start yeah. a new thing. That's true. Well, and yeah. you, you're a great inspiration in that. So, well, Wayne, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time and, and uh, your great insights and this has been a real treat for me as somebody who has uh, been a listener of music that you've written and been a part of for the vast majority of my life. Very grateful for your contribution to my own personal musical soundtrack, and uh, I'm sure others would too if they you know, had a chance to express that as well. So thank you for your time, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh yeah, well thank you, and nice talking to you. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, share it on your socials, and uh, feel free to leave a review or throw some stars my way. That always, always appreciated. So keep your bags packed and join us on our next Journey to the Stage. And that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>